The following is a sermon from the church at Cherry Dale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. I'll read from Acts 20, 22 through 24. Acts 20, 22, beginning in verse 22 and going through verse 24. This is a subset of the passage that Hugh taught us last week. Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders before he heads to Jerusalem. And he says this, Acts 20, beginning in verse 22. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. She was preaching last week. I was reflecting on, like, what is, what's the life posture that could orient us to say such a thing? Now, we're in the dog days of summer. Good news, college football starts next weekend. It is upon us. No more enduring baseball games. I was thinking about, like, how do we, how do we envision finishes, the completion of things, this imagery of running a race, the language that's used there. So if you're familiar with the game baseball, you know that like this image on the screens is a picture of, of one way to kind of frame out a line or a demarcation in sports. This would be a warning track in a baseball game. What, what's the warning track there for? Well, it's there to provide some semblance of safety for the players that are, that are on the field. Ball's hit into the outfield. The guy's running back, you know, going to make the Sports Center top 10 highlight catch. And as he's running, looking up at the ball, though we would all love to see him run headfirst into the wall, he would not love to see himself run headfirst into the wall. And so in baseball, you have a warning track. The warning track changes the dirt, it changes the feel as you're running, and even if your eyes are up, you can in your periphery see, hey, I need to slow down, I need to get a hand up, I need to brace myself because danger awaits, something that can harm me is there. Now contrast that with the finish line in track and field. This image is from a a recent race, this is from an actual race. Uh, and the guy approaching the finish line. Now, think about the differences in your, in your posture as a baseball player approaching the warning track on the wall and the track and field athlete approaching the finish line. No one in their right mind in this short distance is slowing down as they approach the finish line. What are you, what are you told to do? You run through the tape, right? You want to accelerate all the way to the finish, whatever it costs, and leave it all there. And then once you've crossed the line, you want to slow down. Well, everything in our life teaches us a warning track baseball style of operation, right? It teaches slow down, play it safe, watch the wall, don't get hurt. But what we see in Paul's life consistently emphasized and modeled for us is track and field type living. It is running through the tape, being able to say, I finished the course, and not merely saying that, but actually demonstrating that in what he did. And I think we would be the kinds of people, whatever the tape is for you, whether it's coming to the end of your life or finishing this next year well, would say, yeah, intuitively I know that I want to be the kind of person that doesn't play it safe. 
that I want to leave it all in the field. I want to do everything with what God has given me. Again, reading these words from Acts 21, beginning in verse 10. And after we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and he came to us, and he took Paul's belt, and he tied his own hands and feet, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Now, if we were going to tease out, like, what is the virtue at the heart of what would compel someone to make statements as crazy as that? I'm ready to, to do it not only to die here. I would suggest that perhaps what's at the base of statements like this would be the the virtue of courage. And it's to that topic that I want us to speak this morning, courage. A missionary's courage in the face of a hostile world. And what I want to ask this morning and suggest for us is there are four marks, four attributes that are at the root of this kind of courage. But before we ask and answer the question, what's at the root of the radical courage that we see in Paul's life? We've got to ask the question, like, do I even need this kind of courage? It's one thing, and it's quite easy to approach the Bible as a series of history lessons. It's another thing to attempt to make their story our story. And if we're going to personalize the story of the scriptures and make the spirits press on our lives and the application that we should have, we've got to ask the question, do I even, like, need that kind of courage? Well, maybe there's two ways to frame up, do you need that kind of courage? One, one way to think about it would be if your default answer is, well, no, then it could be that the Spirit is pressing you out of safety and comfort to live the kind of life that would necessitate courage, right? This would be an appropriate application of a consideration of biblical courage. If you're like, ah, if I'm honest, my life really doesn't require a whole lot of courage. It's kind of like giving a crib to a husband and wife that don't have any children. Like, I don't really even know what to do with it if I got it even if I run after courage, then maybe the thing, the application for you on the end of this sermon is to say, like, what would it look like for me to step into more courageous living? Secondly, perhaps we actually need courage more than we think we do. Um, To persevere in doing what is right, to continue to do menial work as unto the Lord, to speak with kindness rather than trying to get even, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to share the gospel with a coworker with whom we've had ongoing relationship. Friends, at the base of those actions, at least perseverance in those actions, is radical courage. And anyone who is going to do that consistently is going to be a man or woman that is marked by courage. So maybe you need courage more than you think. Chapters 21 through 28 in the book of Acts could be considered a profile in courage. 
In fact, often in this book, they're kind of summarized as a story through the sufferings of Paul. And honestly, I was convicted as I was reading this week that it's a portion that I've tended to read through quite quickly in the past. You know, if the book of Numbers is the sticky pages of the, all of the Bible, Acts 20 through, 21 through 28 is the sticky pages for my book of Acts. The earlier chapters are more familiar to me and quite frankly, easier to talk about and to preach. These chapters are long. They're somewhat repetitious. And there are so many interesting rabbit holes that you could run down in these chapters. History, political leaders, chronology. In fact, you could spend many a good New Testament class trying to reconstruct the details of the exact times and locations and where letters are written from and to whom and who delivered these. And I commend that for you. These are good works for us. But what I want to do this morning in more of a preaching fashion is ask, what is the Spirit trying to press out of us as we consider these chapters? And to do so, let me frame up just an overly simplistic outline of what's happening here. Overly simplistic, I'm not attempting to mine the data points, but merely just to help you kind of frame the book of Acts in your mind. We have this account that, Paul, uh, that Hugh mentioned last week, in Acts 20 of Paul's interaction with the Ephesian elders, culminating two or three year ministry that he had with the people there. And then at the beginning of verse of chapter 21, we see a, Jeru- a journey to Jerusalem with an, an offering for the poor that's going to end what is commonly known as Paul's third missionary journey. So we're at the end of that. As he arrives in Jerusalem, Chapters 21 through 26, specifically, are going to detail a series, an arrest, and a series of defenses that Paul's going to make for his ministry and the work that he's doing between various leaders, government authorities, people in positions of power who are going to reference him to another person to hear his case, to another person, and to another person, which makes this feel a bit circular in the writing. During this time, he's going to be imprisoned for two years along the coast in Caesarea. And then next week, we'll see a transfer to Rome, Paul believing that he can't get a fair trial there in home base. So he, as a Roman citizen, says, I I want to go there, somebody to hear my case. Acts 27 and 28 summarize that transfer in chapter 27. And then a series of defenses again in Rome. Luke's somewhat cryptic even about how this story ends and the reconstruction of those latter chronology. Very difficult to make. So the summary we're doing, I've got five chapters this morning. It can be done, I promise. Is in this block in the middle. He comes back to Jerusalem. He's arrested and he's giving a series of defenses. And during this time, Paul is going to continually, time and time again, demonstrate remarkable courage by testifying to the mission of God and his role as an apostle in that mission. His consistent resolve, five times repeated, is going to help us see what is at the root of Paul's courage, and then I hope allow you to transpose that onto your life and say, is that indicative of the kind of courage God is calling me to embody?
So number one, courage for Paul and I hope for you is rooted in radical selflessness. Courage is rooted in radical selflessness. To cover five chapters and do so not in a linear fashion, we're going to do a little bit of Bible playing. going to bounce between some verses and chapters, so hang with me. I hope the verses and references will be on the screen so you can take some notes, or if you've got your device, it should be easy for you to get to. Read in Acts 21, verse 28. And in each of these cases, because my attempt is to preach this text, I'm not necessarily going to describe to whom he's giving every one of these defenses again. We're back in Jerusalem, he's being arrested, and he's giving various defenses to various leaders. We're told a bit of what he's charged with in verse 28. Fellow Israelites, help. Acts 21, 28. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he's brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. So they seized Paul, they drug him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut in verse 30. If you wanted to summarize the accusations against the Apostle Paul in this text, really two, one that he's being sacrilegious, that he's not keeping the customs of the law, that he's not upholding the Mosaic law, in fact that he's developing some type of cult sect that is saying this is no longer necessary for your salvation, for your rightness before God. And here, what would have been a critical offense, he's bringing those who are unclean ceremonially into the temple. Now, Paul is going to consistently say throughout his defenses, no, what I'm doing isn't anything new. Rather, it's the natural outcome of all that the prophets, the moral code of the Old Testament, it's the outcome of all that pointed to. So, being sacrilegious, and then secondly, sedition. That he's just being a rabble-rouser, right? He's just causing trouble. Everywhere this dude goes, there's problems. He causes riots. And if you're a leader of a city, on one hand, you're thinking, like, I don't really care what dude's teaching. Just don't cause trouble. Like, don't make people fight. Fight is bad. All right? We're trying to control the peace of the city, and you're just stirring up trouble. So there, in the face of these accusations, at the end of chapter 21, Paul asked the commander to speak. Now, I want you to notice this. So Acts 21, verse 40. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps, and he motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse that we could talk about. But the scene is, he's being accused, he's being carried away, and as he's been carried away, he speaks to the commander. He does so in a way that says, I'm not some country bumpkin, but you should actually listen to me. In fact, I'm a Roman citizen, so you should let me speak, let me give a defense. And then in a day before, I mean, we don't have PA systems, right? So he gestures to the crowd as an orator would, He commands their attention, and then he speaks in a conversational language that, remember at this time, the Jews would have been scattered around. 
So coming back to Jerusalem from the diaspora, people that are scattered in all kinds of places, they're coming back and they speak in Aramaic to have some type of conversational, united voice with the people. And he addresses them in a way that everyone in the group can understand. And he says, in summary, what Connor just read, verse 14 of chapter 22, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will. Now, he's speaking of his own story. He does this multiple times. He testifies to God's activity in his life by telling his story of his conversion on the Damascus Road. To see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. Since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen or heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this is a fascinating claim for Paul to make. This time, who gets baptized? Well, Gentile converts, they are the ones in need of cleansing. The outsiders, they don't keep the law. They're not upholding these standards. We baptize them into these traditions. But one who is fastidious in the work of the Jewish tradition, who's upholding the law, as Paul's going to say at the introduction to the book of Galatians, he's been the foremost of these. And he says, when I met Jesus, I too was baptized. I submitted myself, I recognized my sinfulness, I placed myself under the lordship of Jesus, and this is what I'm calling now all people, Jew and Gentile alike, to their need for Jesus. A bit later, speaking of the same theme to a different leader in Acts 25, beginning in verse 9, this time we get Festus, who's wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me on these charges? Paul replied, I'm standing in Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know this very well. If then I did no wrong and I am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death, but there is nothing To what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with the council, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. I want you to notice the radical selflessness, both in Paul's understanding of his salvation. He too was in need of submission to baptism, his need for Christ, and in his understanding of his mission. What a remarkable phrase in verse 11. I'm not trying to escape death. We see this throughout this testimony that Paul's aim isn't to get out. But it's rather to testify to the person and work that he submitted his life to. And this, friends, is at the root of our courage as well. Courage comes from taking a focus off of ourselves and turning the attention to a supreme other. Now, a moment of consideration. This is not how our culture teaches courage, is it? How do you find courage? You double down on yourself. You suck it up. 
you figure out the right number of practices that are going to create a virtuous person in you that is capable of taking on all comers. And in fact, what are the greatest obstacles to courage? They're seeking your own self-interest and your own self-preservation. They're playing warning track with life. So, what I need to do is suck it up, muster the energy in myself, and how do I avoid things that are going to bring harm? I protect myself. Paul models for us a different posture, and that is taking your eyes off of yourself. Saying, in my salvation, it wasn't a work of mine. God saved me, and I submitted to his truth about me. And in my life, the outcome isn't mine. It is his entirely. Secondly, consider courage is rooted in an unrelenting trust in the providence of God. Courage is rooted in an unrelenting trust in the providence of God. Consider Acts 23, verse 10. The dispute, and this happens throughout these chapters, people get in fights. It's a really curious set of chapters committed to you this week. If you're struggling with Bible reading, this one will keep you awake in the mornings or at night. It's a fascinating series. We got fist fights and people brawling, getting into all, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So we've got some kind of riot breaking out, and the commander fears that Paul's going to be torn apart by them. He ordered the troops to go down, take him away, and bring him back to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So it's necessary that you also testify about me in Rome. Now put these pieces together. Paul's been told that he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And what do we read at the outside of the sermon? What's going what's to await him? Trials, persecution, suffering, hardship. It's not going to be good. And now dude says, yeah, not only, not only that, you, you're going go to go to Rome too, right? You're going to go to Rome, and there you're going to commend the grace of Jesus to this group for the same thing, the same suffering. It's necessary that you go. Throughout these chapters, we see one life-threatening experience after another. Paul, imagine this, the one who has been active for all of his life. He's pressing out into new places, committing the gospel, planting churches. Now he's being carried around. He's shackled and bound. He's passive. He's being taken to places that he doesn't necessarily want to go. And yet through all of this, his journey to Jerusalem and then subsequently his journey to Rome, we see the sovereign providential hand of God orchestrating in Paul's lives, in Paul's passivity, the activity of God is being demonstrated. He's going to sl- I mean, he's going to Jason Bourne these chapters. He slips through assassins, he slips out of places and into places, and you're thinking, bro, that's just too good to be true. Why is it too good to be true? Because every time it happens, it's reminding us that the invisible hand of God is actually orchestrating everything that we see. Right? The invisible hand of God is positioning the Apostle Paul through his three missionary journeys, now passively in Jerusalem, and then going to Rome. The Spirit of God, the activity of God is orchestrating all of this. It is not clever luck. 
And in fact, even in things like two years imprisonment, one wonders whether the Apostle Paul would have ever slowed down long enough to write the letters that we have in our New Testament. Were it not for this seeming dead end to his life, Paul is, God is orchestrating everything, and this allows Paul then to interpret all of life through the lens of God's control. Consider these words, Ephesians 1, 11, through 11 and 12. In him we've received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we, who had already put our hope in Christ, might bring praise to his glory. Like, if you want a courage verse, put that one on your mirror. God's working everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. He double-clicks on this idea in Romans 8, a passage that's quite familiar to many of us. We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Consider for a moment. If the great, all right, let me ask you this. When something that causes you to fear is out there, how do we think through that fearful event? All right, here's what I do. I attempt to create in my mind all the reasons that that fearful thing can't actually harm me, right? Why I would never put myself in that circumstance, why I would never go there, why that outcome would never... We want to interpret it away from us to give us a sense of peace of mind in the moment. Well, I'm doing the right kind of things. Prove why we wouldn't get hurt. Let me encourage you that true freedom is found in trust, in the providence of God, and not by playing it safe to prove how we might avoid harm. As one, I couldn't find the source of this quote, when God's purposes for me are over, then I will die. Right? The point being, as long as God has purposes, I'm here, and when those purposes are over, I will die. This is a God who is bringing good, who is orchestrating good out of seemingly evil circumstances. And I don't think it's any wonder that in the fall we're going to shift our attention back to the book of Genesis and consider the life of Joseph, the one who at the end of his life could famously say in Genesis 50, 20, what man intended for evil, God purposed for good. Courage is rooted in, grounded in, motivated by this sense that even when I can't interpret the circumstances of my life, the providential hand of God is orchestrating them for my, glory, my good and his glory. Thirdly and quickly, courage is rooted in authentic belief. Courage is rooted in authentic belief. I'll read from chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. But I admit this to you. So this, again, is Paul's defense. People are accusing him of being sacrilegious. He says, listen, here's what I'm going to admit. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they are called a sect, believing everything in, in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have hope in God which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and of the unrighteous. I could have reframed this point and said that courage is rooted in hope in God. 
Courage is rooted in the fact that the things that I profess with my lips, I actually believe these things are going to happen. And here specifically, he keeps pointing back to the resurrection. Notice that in verse 15. We all, there will be a resurrection and then a real courageous, bold thing. He says, of the righteous and the unrighteous, right? There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to even be a separation. Now, again, we're talking in an era that is not long after the death and resurrection of Christ. We have people, generation testifying to the miracles and to the resurrection And Paul is saying, I believe in the validity of the resurrection. I believe that there is a coming resurrection. And I believe that the righteous will be raised to new life. He is courageous because he genuinely believes the story that he professes with his lips. Do you? I mean, this is is an area we've got to press in Southern culture, right? Right? Because it is really easy for us to re-articulate mom or dad's faith. But when things get pressed, when courage is called out of us, we cower because we're not actually sure we really believe that. Do I really believe my sins are forgiven? Do I really believe that I have boldness to access God the Father through Christ? Do I really believe that the Spirit dwells within me? powers me? Do I really believe there is a coming resurrection where this where all sin and tragedy and suffering will be removed? I will be raised to new life with Christ forever. Like, do I really believe that? If so, doesn't that reorient a life of courage? It presses it out in us in ways that are bold. I can, as Paul will hear, Endure being left in prison for two years. Because I actually believe there's something coming that's bigger than this. I mean, think, maybe just personal for me. I mean, two days of pause frustrates me. Two days when I can't see a clear outcome. Two days that feel like a dead end. Our brother's got two years here. What gives you the life to endure that kind of suffering? Well, it's courage that says, I actually believe there's something beautiful coming. Something beautiful that I think C.S. Lewis most beautifully pictures and probably my favorite quote. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this was the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. For at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story for which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before, right? That kind of orientation, this is but the, the cover page, reframes a life of courage. Okay, lastly, courage is rooted in a genuine sense of mission. It's perhaps my favorite paragraph in these chapters, Acts 26 24 to 32. 
As he was saying these things in defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I am speaking words of truth and good judgment. Talk about courage, verse 26. For the king already knows these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I'm convinced that none of these things have escaped his notice, since they are not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, Paul replied, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked to each other, and they said, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. But Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have easily been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Notice what Paul does. In the face of suffering, judgment, his trial, he's working the mission. Hey, I'm doing what God told me to do, such that it is clear to his hearers that he's not in this simply to make a defense. He's trying to persuade them that what they have believed the natural outcome would be trust in Christ. I want you to become what I am, except without these chains, and not only you, but everyone. Everyone. Paul understands that what he is facing gives him the unique opportunity to advance the mission. Is that how you interpret problems, suffering, Is your orientation, woe is me, or is it fundamentally, this provides a unique opportunity for me to give testimony to the hope that is in me, to the work of Christ? I'm not attempting to suggest that that is easy to do. It is a work and an activity of God's Spirit to produce in us what we can't conjure up on our own. But notice this verse from Philippians 1. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Could, could the same be said of the weird plot lines of your life? The story that you wouldn't write if you had it to write over again? That in those weird plot lines, What happened to me was actually advancing the gospel. To steal an overused phrase, convinced that most of us spend way too much time standing too close to the elephant when it comes to our life. And when we're standing too close to the elephant, we interpret everything as wrinkly, gruff skin. But to step back gives us a wider perspective of the grand scope of eternity and allows us to see these pieces actually connect. The sovereign providential hand of God is orchestrating the plot lines of our life in such a way that there is something happening bigger than me that is causing to advance the gospel in and through me. And isn't this the beautiful story of our Savior Christ's life? 
one of the things I was struck with as I was reading these chapters this week is how much this story mirrors the story of Jesus. The setting his face to Jerusalem, the knowing the suffering that would await, the bogus trials and the consistent defenses, the perseverance of the one who the Hebrews writer would say, why did he do that? Because of the joy that was set before him. He endured all of that because he knew something bigger, your salvation. So friends, might we live bold and courageous life, lives for the joy that is set before us as well. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do bow asking that you would grant us by your spirit courage. Pray that you would press us into endeavors that necessitate courage and that you would continue to root in our lives the type of thoughts, the type of heart orientation that would make courage a natural, habitual virtue that your spirit is producing in us. And and regardless of the thing, like how we might minimize kicking back to school and being faithful with our kids and loving our neighbors and caring for the people that you've put in our lives, serving in this church, like how we might easily disconnect our story from Paul's story, God, would you call us all to the type of courage that's indicated in this passage? Would your spirit have its good effect in orienting our attention to the story that's yet to be written that will carry throughout all eternity? Would you remind us that this is but a cover page? And would you give us boldness that can lean in and face the realities of this life with confidence that you who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. It is to him that we orient our hearts, our affections, and it is to him that we sing these songs of praise. For Christ's sake, amen.